Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, <laughs> welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. And we are joined tonight uh, by a, a writer who was first commissioned in the mid-70s when he was 15 uh, by a free newspaper uh, that was distributed by an RAF base I in think King's Lynn maybe. in Norfolk. <laughs> Am I right? I think I'm right. Yes. And uh, what they'd asked for was a, a summer singles roundup. And they were fondly expecting glowing reports of uh, Shawaddy Waddy. Mungo Jerry. Pilot. Mungo Jerry, it would have been, exactly. Casey and the Sunshine Band. What they got instead was Swamp Dog, Millie Jackson, and uh, some, some deep soul imports. Now, after he was immediately sacked, uh, our guest reappeared, which he was. The first of many, The first many of many sackings. He reappeared uh, at the enemy. And since then, has been responsible for some absolutely fantastic, beautiful, elegant... Gorgeously chiselled, uh, thought-provoking uh, writing about about music, uh, a lot of which appears in this absolutely excellent uh, compilation of his essays. It gets me home this curving track. Sinatra, he will tell you, unforgettably takes soiled five-pound words and makes them glisten like mystic opals. His voice like spring light, clarifying a dusty catacomb. It's excellent. Ian Penman. Yeah. <laughs> So, Ian, firstly, where, where, where do you get the idea of the, the title of the book, It Gets Me Home, This Curving Trap? Where does that derive from? Well, it's a W.H. Auden quote. Um, I have to tell you, the working title of the book was um, something that's in the opening essay about mod. It was, uh, I look all white, but my dad was black. <laughs> in the Pete Townsend song. <laughs> and, uh, and what did your publishers say? They said no. <laughs> no. No. Especially the American publishers. They said no. Um, it, it would have caused, at the very least, a Twitter storm, I think. And uh, also, it may have been uh, in bookshops, it may have turned up under Misery Memoir, I yeah, think. Yeah. But, um, but that was the. I never thought it was. I never thought it would really be the title. But it was the working title, because that's what the essays are about. It's, you know, it's how did a. 
how did a gawky white guy in, in Norfolk end up listening to so much soul music and how it literally changed my life. You Which know, you did, because you spent a while, just after you left school, you were going to go to college, weren't you? And you just hitchhiked around to various northern clubs? Yeah, all? I was going to go to art college. It was nothing to do... I never thought I'd be a writer. I always thought it would be uh, painting or something. You know, but, yeah, I ended up hitchhiking to all sorts of clubs and stuff. And then, because it was the punk years... I mean, even though I didn't actually like punk music that much, I just started sending stuff into the NME, you know. In one memorable occasion, I sent in a, a review of Wire at the uh, West Runcton Pavilion that I hadn't actually attended. <laughs> and I, I, oh, the West Runcton <laughs> Pavilion was where all the tours used to start, yeah. wasn't it? It was the opening I, show on all everybody's tour. I did see loads of great did they, there. Did they Did they rumble this? No, no, no. Did they print it? Yeah. Uh, no, no, that was when I was still just sending stuff in yeah. to be accepted. Um, what was the first thing you had published in The Enemy? Uh, it was uh, the, the Stranglers and the Only Ones at Cambridge Corn Exchange, 1977, yeah. Uh, what was the conclusion of it? Can you remember? I can you remember. can quote us some of it. I know you can, because all can writers remember. can quote. Avoid can this remember. band like the plague. <laughs> I can remember the opening, which what whatever happened to the all the heroes, all the existentialist De Niro's, <laughs> and that was the that was the opening line. Yeah, and I actually I actually um, sent it in on, in a phone box. I actually phoned, phoned, phoned it, in. it in. How exciting! Which was I mean, it was at the time. You know, are you, are you you calling in saying, "Get me copy." <laughs> I'm going to read you something about the opening. But, uh, and, you know, you're standing in the middle of nowhere in Norfolk phoning this in, and then, you know, five days later, it's the enemy. It was Incredibly exciting. thrilling. It is, yeah. Really it's thrilling. Never, yeah. I suppose in Norfolk was one of those places uh, where, you know, the presence of the enemy made, made enormous difference to your life, didn't it, when it arrived on a Wednesday or a Thursday? Or oh, well, I, I suppose... Strictly speaking, the first thing I ever had published in the enemy was a letter I sent in to the letters page where I was still at school. And that was incredibly exciting. About that what? I um, can't remember now, but uh, it, was, it was similar to um, sending away for LPs as well, because I remember at the same time, there was a, there was a, I was in grammar school in Downham Market, this tiny town in Norfolk, <laughs> and in lunchtime I'd go to the shop which sold um, washing machines, sheet music, and albums. <laughs> and if you wanted anything, you, you know, if there were any albums you really wanted, you had to order them, and they'd send away from them. And the first one I ever got was Sailing Shoes by Little Feet. So in my lunchtime, I'd go down there, you know, and then every day for two weeks, three weeks, and then finally it was there, and you, you look at this thing, and it's, it's a message from another world, you know. Yeah, it's like absolutely. just the cover to start with. Before you even listen to it, it's like this strange other world that, you know... Well, so, so things were more powerful because you didn't see them. You know, you couldn't. You you weren't going into a local Virgin megastore and flicking through the racks. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's a cliche, but in those days, that culture. If you read newspapers, the Times or the Guardian or anything, they didn't have pop culture in them. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no. It wasn't on the TV. It was. John Peel was about the only thing, the, the only part of the establishment that had it in. So. Um, you had Robin Denslow in The Guardian. That was about it, I think. I, in my archives, I actually have... 
I actually wrote to the listener when I was 16, I think, saying, can I do your weekly uh, pop rock column? 16. <laughs> I've got uh, the letter they sent back. Very, very polite, you know, politely turning me down. What's your memory of the enemy, then? Because I, I, I worked at the enemy at that time. Like, I, I remember you. I remember you in the corner with a... I think with a little pork pie hat on. <laughs> And I think uh, I, I, I seem to remember surrounded by bottles of booze a lot of the time, hammering furiously on a on a on a manual typewriter. Well, some of the time, but um, it was a very intimidating place to be if you were a freelance. You, well, know, you, you, you daren't, uh, you know, volunteer opinions. But I remember saying I quite liked Slade at one point, and the whole place went quiet. You know? <laughs> and I was sort of, I think I was sort of ushered out, <laughs> never employed again. Well, it was also the, the other thing, though. It was enormous fun, you know. It's one minute you're in Norfolk doing nothing, and the next minute you're in, you know. I was only eighteen, nineteen, you know. So it was incredibly exciting to be in in the midst of all that, you know. So, but you weren't intimidated by people, because you, you might you might have been the age of eighteen. I can't quite remember. I was I was saying to someone recently, you know, the first few interviews I did with Annette Peacock, John Fay, Weather Report. <laughs> and you'd think I mean I was actually quite a shy person as well and you know I didn't like interviews that much and you think you would kind of run from it but I, I can't quite remember why but it all it all worked out somehow so who was the first fa- famous person you interviewed famous well it depends what well know. go on the, the first few interviews were Annette Peacock, who came to the door in a towel, having just got out of the shower. Um, Dennis Bavel, John Fay, The Fall. Um, <laughs> the Fall. The Fall? How was The Fall? <laughs> Let's stop you there. That's always interesting, isn't it? I did two fall pieces in short, uh, one in 78, one in 79, 80. And uh, I actually went up there and stayed with them for four or five days, you know, and it, it was... <laughs> That was intimidating. I mean, because Marky Smith was he a fully you, formed person. And didn't he live in terrible us. squalor? The impression you got was... No, no, it wasn't squalor but, um, at all. It was, I mean, they were smoking a lot of dope and stuff, but um, it, was, it was more the fact that he was this fully formed person who had all these opinions and um, likes and dislikes and... Uh, knew, you know, was absolutely certain about what he was doing and, in a sense, didn't change from when I knew him for the next 20 or 30 years. And it was very odd to to meet someone like that who was only a few years older than, you know, you were yourself, uh, who was absolutely, you know... I mean, but again, I must stress, it was also enormous fun. I was... um, On one of the... Was it the first one or the second one? Uh... John Cooper Clark bought me a cheese and onion pie, <laughs> which is one of the great <laughs> boasts of my life. You know, it's like we were, the, the fall went to play. That should be the title of a memoir, sure. Eric's <laughs> in Liverpool, <laughs> and he bought me a vegetarian cheese and onion pie, which was you know. And at the time, but then years later, you think about it, and it becomes this wonderful. Well, it's the idea that years later people are still interested in those, yeah. in those names who, who at the time were just whoever you were sent out to interview on Tuesday. So let's, let's talk about this book. What's the, explain the, 
you know, what's in this book? Because it's not stuff from all of your career, is it? This is relatively recent stuff, isn't no, that right? No, it's, it's all recent stuff. Um, as I say, the, the working title, uh, I look all white, but my dad was black, was the, the guiding principle because when, when I was asked to do it and looked at them, there seemed to be a theme that emerged, which was about this, uh, about white musicians being hugely influenced by black music or black musicians working with white producers and stuff. And I hadn't noticed it at the time, but it, it was there. So that's, that's why they were put together, you know. And so these are a load of long pieces that you've written over the last few years for, what, the London Review of Books and... Yeah, and an American... The uh, Wire? No, no, there's nothing from The Wire yeah. there, but um, from an American magazine called City Journal. Right. The deeply conservative <laughs> American magazine... But um, and these are the not real long form pieces, aren't they? Well, really? the editor of the, Ameri- the deeply conservative American magazine was a fan of the early NME stuff. I mean, this is what's happened throughout my life: is that people um, turn out to be, you know, turn out to have read the NME at yeah. a crucial point in their life and have this um, a memory of, uh, you know, whether it's accurate or not. But. Well, we're going to start by talking about James Brown, I think. I mean, James Brown and his childhood, your description of his childhood, is absolutely... I mean, it's extraordinarily revealing. It was a really miserable start to life. Well, it's partly from the book. It's not... You know, it's it's a very good book. You're reviewing Um, a book, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But um, that was the, the point of the essays was... I mean, a lot of essays about music are either about the life or they're kind of about the... um, the, the technique and the music, you know, and um, at its best, I would hope that you'd, you'd be able to weave it together, you know. I mean, I'm very, very, very lucky with both those publications in, in that I was allowed months, sometimes years, <laughs> to so write these pieces. <laughs> no, no, most of the months. It's only the Prince piece that... It took a bit longer. So, well, you, so seriously, your James Brown piece in here, which is wonderful, like the whole the whole thing, is absolutely wonderful, and it will be about I don't know what six or seven thousand words long, maybe. Is uh, it? Is that no, long? the Prince one is long. That that one's okay, so, slightly short. Yeah. Okay, but let's say it's four or five thousand words. How long will it take you to do that? Um, well, the first few in the book. Where uh, didn't take that long. It's more. I think it's more a question of what I've read during my life and listened to, you know. And I've always wanted to do stuff like this. And um, I've got a whole wall at home of books, you know, which I've I've read about these people, and always in the hope that at some point I'd be able to put it to some use. Right, you know, right. Like so it's it's, it's, it's things knowledge like. accumulated over yeah. a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the, the start of James Brown's life, you, you get the impression it was so terrible, and give us some details about that, but it's so terrible that that's where his relentless work ethic must have come from, constantly seeking to get out of the predicament he was in. Well, like a lot of child abuse, I think, he, he re- repeated the pattern. That was very much the point, I think, was like um, his, his, his own childhood was one in which he was barely allowed any... Uh, well, any sense of a childhood, any sense of play, of just, you know... And later on, he took that own attitude towards his own musicians, I think. It was like, you're, you're not... Ele- he, he had... Every minute had to be accounted for. Every, everything was a, a question of control, and um, uh, some of the musicians would, 
would be fined if their shoes weren't shined properly or, you know, if they were even a semi-quaver off or something. So he repeated the, the own horror of his childhood throughout his own life, I think, which was one of the tragedies. And you life. couldn't win, could you? Because, I mean, if you, if you went along with what he wanted you to do, he thought you were weak, and yeah. if you resisted it, you were kind of exiled. It was mind games throughout, I think. But, you, I mean, again, this repeats throughout the book with John Fay and other people, and they're not necessarily well-rounded people. Yes. <laughs> no, they're not, no. But they no, 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 people in their life, especially the people who love them most, I think, treated them worse. The more you loved them, the worse they treated you. And, but on the other hand, for some reason, it produced this incredible music, which we mustn't forget had never been done before at the time. You know, a lot of this stuff, no one had done what Charlie Parker or John Fay or John Brown, uh, James Brown had done before. You know, they... they you made you make the point with James Brown that his music was all about work. That you, you can hear the effort at absolutely every stage. Well, he had a kind of... Um, he had a sense of his own politics. Is, is that work and money were the only things that mattered, that would get him out, you know, that would establish him and get, get, get him out of the horror that he'd grown up with, I think. So talk, talk, talk about his relationship with, with musicians, because... You know, you say that a lot of what people applaud in James Brown, his music, wasn't necessarily his doing. No, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, Bootsy and other musicians who, because he'd get them in the studio and he'd, he'd, off, he'd kind of offer them very, very, very vague instructions about the mood or what was to be done. But again, you know, that it produced, it worked, you know. He challenged them, you know, he, kind of, he was like a father... He was like a, an awful kind of patriarchal figure who bullied them, but it did produce this this wonderful stuff. So, so how do you how do you feel about it? I mean, I, in the essays, I don't, I really don't want to take a moral position. I don't want to say, you know, especially in these times when it's very, you know, there's a lot of. I don't want to use no, it's so true. phrase political correctness. Oh, yeah, it's like, it's, like Michael Jackson is the biggest well, issue now. Is the Michael Jackson. Should we it's, be it's listening a, to Michael Jackson? It's a lot, lot more complex at every yeah. stage of the way, I think. You know, I think there's a lot of pain there, you know, and it's, it's, it's very easy to condemn people like that, but they're, in a, they're repeating the pain of their past a lot yeah. of the time, I think, you know. So we've mentioned Charlie Parker. I wanted to include this because... I'll be, I'll be quite honest, I don't know very much about Charlie Parker, and I wouldn't mind betting there are people in this room who don't know very much about Charlie Parker either, but are aware that he's the kind of acme of hip and, you know, jazz player who died, tragic circumstances and so forth. Charlie Parker is somebody you constantly refer to throughout your writing. Yeah. What is it about him? Well, I think, um, I think the person I... I refer to more is probably Billie Holiday but yes there's a, there's a lot in there about Charlie Parker and again I think it's um, in the essay there's a, there's a paragraph where I refer to the fact that his career wasn't actually that great you know, the, it didn't have the classic arc he, he did it all too fast too soon and he did one thing 
and he did it very well, but he was a bit monomaniacal about it, you know, and he, he, it wasn't going to end well, I think. Yeah. And I think there's a paragraph where I say, you know, he, did, he, he boxed himself in, you know, in, in the end, it's not a healthy life. You just, you develop certain muscles at the expense of other muscles, and you, he gets very good at doing certain things, at improvising within certain bounds, but he's not good at, you know, at other things. And at certain times in my freelance career, <laughs> I felt the same. You know, you can get very good at doing something. You wake up in the morning, there's a blank page, you fill it with 900 words or something, and you can get very good at that. But in the end, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to, well, to work like this. You know, you, you have to... You, this sort of work takes more time and reflection and stuff, and he died before he could do that. Kind of thing. You describe you, know. you describe him as the first deep water jazz musician to capture the public imagination. So how did he do that? What what was it that he was doing? Was it just the it, it, complexity and dexterity? Well, was no, so I think it was more the in that case it was more the gossip. I think it was more the the fact that he was this um, flaming comet. You know, it was yeah. more the personal life. It was the drugs and stuff. You know, but um, trying not to use the word iconic, but yeah. <laughs> But you're not a musician, no. or are you? Although, well, no. Uh, one of the reasons I think that, that um, I became a lot more sympathetic to s- some of these figures, um, I mean, in my teenage years, like a lot of boys, I did plunk away on the guitar and so on, and then 20, 30 years, put it down, nothing. And then through just completely accidental circumstances, I did s- start playing the guitar again. 10, 15 years ago, taking it a bit more seriously and stuff. And um, I think it made me a lot more sympathetic to some of these people because uh, I think musicians are, like painters, are completely... I think they have a completely different mind from writers, you know. I think a lot of music writers are always looking for lyrics and meaning and stuff. And if you spend any time with musicians or if you... um, try to get into playing music yourself, you realise it's not like that at all. Musicians speak in kind of um, tones and textures and abstract stuff. I mean, it's, it's never about uh, meaning, I don't think, for how, a lot of How them. did he manage to remain so productive? Because, you know, he was a heroin addict. At one point, you say he's virtually living in taxis. He would hire a taxi for three or four days and use it as a kind of bedroom and an office, a place to compose. And He just lived this absolutely reckless well, life. Still, and yet still, was, there were 400 uh, recordings, I think. Well, he's still that, fairly that he young, left I think, behind, yeah. you know. And, um, but that's the mystery behind a lot of it, is, is what drives people in fact. I think there's also a misunderstanding a lot of the time about, you know... Um, uh, what drugs do to people, and, and well, you could say, say the same about Keith Richards. You know, he did his best work on, you know, on heroin and stuff. You know, it's, it's like people think it's kind of um, it's going to. I think there's a very short arc where people can be brilliant on drugs, but only probably for about five or six years or something. You know, and sadly that was, you know. I think you quote one case where he's, he's um, it must be mentioned in the book that you're reviewing, where he's, uh, he's out in the middle of nowhere in America in the <laughs> on, on tour yeah. or something. Yeah. And he just heads out in pretty much into the desert. He got off the train and just walked across Assuming the Assuming there must be drugs out there yeah. somewhere. Well, if I made the film, that would be the opening. You know, it's like... Uh, but that was what his, his 
life um, shaped around, and um, I'm not sure. I hope that the essay is is manages to be kind of complex about that. It doesn't come down on one side or the other. You know, it doesn't say that he was a bad man or that this got no. in the way of that. Because uh, in each of these figures, I think they're very complex lives. You know. Now, I think I think it's very point really well made throughout the book that it's the sound of these things that is what they're about it's not what the lyrics mean exactly, or, yeah. or what they say in an interview it's you know it's coming directly out of them is well that's that what i've wanted to write about for years i think the one thing um that i've been obsessed with down the years is the voice and singers mainly and um but not what they sing not the supposed meaning, but the voice and how it affects us, which is far, far more difficult to write about, I think. Let's Although it's, it's talk, very simple and complex at the same time. Talking of that, sorry, I've, I've lost my... I had a picture of a load of Frank Sinatra albums, which I've briefly lost here. But let's talk about Frank Sinatra, because that's, you know, one of your, one of your essay subjects is, uh, <laughs> is Frank Sinatra. It's Terry dealing with the uh, technicalities out the back here, which you, you may hear... Clanking in the also interesting, an only child with a doting mother. We were talking about this earlier. Where there's three people in the book. Yeah, there's him, yeah. there's Elvis Presley. We we're going to talk about at yeah. the moment, and there's Frank Sinatra and Charlie, Charlie Parker. Parker. All yeah. three of them, yeah. only children, and with these adoring mothers who kind of propelled them forward. You know. Well, that interests me. I think um, in my early days, if I had been writing about it, I would try to refer to uh, certain other writers about it and um, because you know you're young you haven't li- that's the point about the enemy I think is we were very young we hadn't lived we didn't know anything about life we didn't know anything especially about the uh, more difficult more painful aspects of life you know just full of hurrah you know yeah, yeah. and those essays I think couldn't be written until you, you, certainly you've lived a lot more and you know There's so tell, talk to us about Frank Sinatra you know what's special about the way Frank Sinatra sings, because you you say, I think you say, if we're only going to listen to one voice, it might as well be him. Well, I think two, Billy Holiday and him. But okay. um, the fascinating thing about him is the difference between the song and the life, because the, the life is so showy and so um, uh, there's such violent swings. You know, it's vulgar and violent, and you know. Um, then you come to the songs, and he's, it's like a different person is singing them. He's barely there. He's got this uh, thing that he can do. You wonder if he's even aware of how good he, he is at it. You know, He doesn't sing in the way that a lot of singers do now, especially soul singers, where it's all uh, arrows to what you should be feeling, you know, showboating. He does the opposite of showboating, and I think he got that from Billie Holiday. Well, he admitted it. He he learned from Billie Holiday how to almost absent himself from the singing. You know, it's it's. Um, and some of that must have been to do with the arrival of the microphone, because the microphone the microphone must have changed everything. Because suddenly you had the possibility to have a really intimate relationship with an audience. Well, I mentioned it in there. Bing Crosby was responsible for a lot of that. Um, Everyone yeah. thinks of Bing Crosby as this strange, croaky old figure. But he was another... He was the Sinatra before Sinatra. He was obsessed. Most singers in those days had to belt it out to the back of the hall. That's, you know, with big, yeah. big bands behind them. But um, Crosby was the first to realise that recording the voice would change everything. And he actually spent a lot of time and money investigating how you could best record the voice and... Uh, 
he actually came up with some of the technology at the time, Bing Crosby. And um, Sinatra was obsessed with Billie Holiday and Bing Crosby, and he was the, the beautiful result of this. Because the record, I think you, you talk about quite a bit, is the Sinatra, the, the kind of bossa nova record that he... Gent barely there. It's, <laughs> yeah, you put it on, you hardly notice it at but all. But at the same time, you can't ignore it. It's, um, and you listen to that album, and it's like, it's, it's the opposite of Jekyll and Hyde, you know? It's like, it's, it's his good, it's the good Sinatra singing there, you know? It's like, so subtle, and... Um, that, sorry. And did, didn't he listen to the way horn players played and yeah. their breathing and study that and use that as a, a, a kind of model for the way he sung. Well, when he He's started about his own really... album, yeah. uh, the first album he put out was Ben Webster. Yeah. He's a beautiful tenor saxophonist and uh, he also loved Lester Young. And um, it's, it's what's not done, it's what's left out. You know, it's the gaps you leave, it's the kind of um, what you don't do that he learnt there, I think. So contrast that with... Another singer you write about in the book, Elvis Presley, <laughs> who was showy, wasn't he? Um, what did you find to admire in him? Well, I think that's the one figure in the book that wasn't actually someone that I loved or was a hero. But the more I read about him, the more I did uh, feel that way about him. I felt uh, an immense amount of um, sympathy for him because I think he got trapped... Uh, uh, in the same way that Parker did, I think, because no one had ever done it before. No. Know, and it's like, and we all assume it would be a great thing to be the first rock and roll singer and everything, but perhaps, perhaps it wasn't. You know, I think he was an essentially passive man uh, who didn't expect, had no idea what was what was about to befall him. You know, to become this. Uh, world-circling figure. Well, the chapter starts in 1965, and him just wanting to get off the tour, wanting, <laughs> wanting to get up, give up. Now, why was that? And, and, you know, he still had another 12 years to go, as it were. Well, what, what had happened in 1965 to make him feel that way? I think the interesting thing in the book would be the, the figure you might compare him with would be Prince, which isn't the first person you'd think about. But um, one of Prince's roadies said... Um, uh, once Prince had done uh, Purple Rain, you know, he got everything he'd ever wanted and then realised he didn't want it. And it's similar to Elvis Presley. They both retreat into themselves. Yeah. But what is the self they retreat into? Because they'd, it, they'd been very young when they started. So unlike most of us, they didn't have a chance to grow up, you know, to... Um, to compare, you know, to have friendships, to find out different degrees of pain and love and stuff, they they were just thrown into this strange world. And also, as they say about, about celebrity, that you may remain frozen at the emotional age that you were when you first became famous. You, you could la- land up in your mid-30s still as a kind of 16-year-old emotionally. You know? Well, there's another... There's almost a class thing there that I'm sympathetic to, you know. You come from this humble background and you're thrown into this thing and you don't, you're not prepared for it on any level I don't think but that's also what you hear in the voice a lot of the time I think when, when they create their art I think what you hear that kind of loneliness in I think so yeah I, I think that's 
for years now what I've wanted to write about is that uh, writing about the voice without necessarily writing about the lyrics. Right. What you can hear, the ghosts you can hear in the voice, I think. Yeah. So the voice is essentially singing the same song. Over and over again, you think. <laughs> well, is there anything in that? I don't know. Possibly, I don't know. The problem with Perthley was I was never a fan because I never liked the voice. That was right. the problem. I mean, I eventually found um, some of his stuff, the Memphis stuff from the 70s that I liked. But previous to that, I was, ne- you know, I never mentioned it to <laughs> But I wasn't a big uh, Elvis fan. Same with John Coltrane, you know. For years, I never mentioned it. Don't actually like the way he sounds. <laughs> well, I would, I'm with you there, but uh, yeah. So, it, although the things I did like with um, Elvis uh, were the softer, slower things, the less rock and rolly things, you know. But um, where I thought you actually heard more of him, basically. Right. You made the point that you think Colonel Tom Parker's probably had a, a bad rap <laughs> because he's the person who realised that Elvis was there to be looked at. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's not had an altogether bad rap. He wasn't, you know... But a fascinating man in himself as well, I think. You know, he's, he's, he was way ahead of his time, you know. These years he would be... Well, he'd probably in, be in jail, but... Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could argue that he didn't do much to arrest Presley's decline. I mean, he had some brilliant business ideas. Well, I didn't know, for example, until I read your book, that he'd, he'd, he'd pressed up a load of hate Presley badges <laughs> and distributed them to the people, all his dissenters. Well, he understood the media before there was a media. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, part, that was one of the things that fascinated Like Like Presley, he was... He was from an, a nothing background, but he had this idea in his head. He, he, he saw what was happening, you know, and other people didn't. Do you think there's something about popular music that, that kind of suits people who come from nothing backgrounds, as you say? Um, they, can, they can kind of they can invent something in the world of pop music that they might not be able to do in theatre or... Well, I mean, performing arts. The thing about the book is, I think, also, it's almost like a disguised autobiography, you know, almost completely disguised. I mean, I never, there would be no reason for me to write a memoir or autobiography. No one would be interested. But if I think throughout the book, there are paragraphs and sentences that are about that, because that's what the enemy was like, as I said earlier. One minute you were, I was working in uh, H. Smith. Um, what was it? Uh, jewelers, High Street Jewelers, in 1978. H. Samuel. H. Samuel. H. Samuel. W. H. Smith. H. Samuel. Yeah. Okay. No, it was the jeweler, not the. Yeah. And then one minute you're doing that, and then the next minute you're, you know, right. Not prepared for it in some senses, like these figures. Talk to us about Prince, who you write about in the book. What was your fascination with Prince? Well, I. Uh, I think it's not my fascination, I think it's everyone's fascination, is um, he was so wonderful, and then he wasn't. I mean, what happened? Is <laughs> 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 that true of so many people? <laughs> but it's true, you know. Stop where yeah, where, where did it go wrong? Where do you draw the line? I don't know. I'm reminded of the Nick Rogue film, um, where uh, Gene Hackman, after years and years, discovers gold, and then he finally gets what he wants, and then after that, he's got nothing, nothing left to do. Just 
and there's a quote from the film, all this leftover time to kill. And I think Prince, I think probably during the 80s, he had one of the most, he, I think he was probably one of the happiest people alive. And he, he was just throwing out these wonderful ideas and wonderful music and so on. And then at some point it stopped. You know. I, I do say in the book that it's, um, I describe it as an, uh, a long and oddly dispiriting goodbye to Prince. Partly because I thought, I mean, I spent a lot of time on it, <laughs> way too much time, but I thought I might get a hint of why it happened. But in the end, I had no idea. You know, it's like, it's, 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 it's a very odd story. It's a very odd kind But when of he thing. makes all the money and builds Paisley Park, he then, rather like Graceland, as you were saying earlier, he then disappears into Paisley Park and is kind of imprisoned by it to some extent, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, but... I assume it started earlier. Again, there's a very odd upbringing, you know, with the father and mother. There's a lot of tension there. And uh, what happens when you're called prince? What happens when you're baptised prince? You know, it's like from the beginning. It's a rough start, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) You live up to it. But I don't know. um, I'd like to be able to say I I got some sense of why, why it went wrong, but... Uh, it's very odd. I don't know. So musically, what do you think? I mean, there he was producing, playing all the instruments, um, recording, doing entire albums. Well, on his own. for one what, thing, what was the what was the main achievement musically? Do you think? Well, for one thing, it's it's very odd. If you listen back to those albums, the eighties, it was just one after another. They were wonderful, but um, he he talks and sings, for instance, about sex relentlessly. But I get the sense that he wasn't a particularly erotic person. I, I get the sense that he wasn't a particularly soft or reflective or erotic person. He was a workaholic and someone who was happiest alone, completely alone. And that's one of the reasons at the end when I talk about his death is that it's inevitable that he died alone because you know he's, he, his whole life had been that in a sense. He's got all this money, all this everything, but he's happiest alone for some reason, making not even making music with other people, but you know, doing it himself. It's it's a Citizen Kane thing, I think. There's a strange combination of utter ego and ruthlessness, with a very odd kind of um, sadness or loneliness under underneath it all. I think. Do you do most of your kind of uh, listening to music on record, or, or do you go to live gigs? Or with in, in Prince's case, did go you go to live gigs? <laughs> no, I did. I did in the past. Obviously, I saw Prince's first ever gig in in Britain. Yeah, was that an important part of his appeal to you? Um, or no, I preferred the recorded stuff. The, the The first gig was actually a huge disappointment. I think I got the impression he'd thought, well. I'm going to play in Great Britain for the first time. They love Led Zeppelin and rock music. So he came and did this really guitar-y kind of... Um, it, was a, it was less like soul music than a kind of, you know, onslaught. And I was very disappointed. I think I actually walked out. Um, <laughs> I'm ashamed to say. But, but you're not a big gig-goer nowadays? Oh, not no, 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 no. no. Right, right. <laughs> well... For one thing, I mean, it costs so much, but I've got terrible tinnitus in this ear, uh, which I blame on dub music and Lou Reed. 
when I was. Oh right, okay. It's too late to but take no, it out it with is actually read. painful. I couldn't. I could. I literally. Oh really? Couldn't. No. Oh, I see. So well, to, I was do you about, do you go to a lot? Uh, not a lot. No, yeah. no. But um, talk about somebody quieter that you write about in this book. I'm delighted to see you write about him, John Fay. Yeah. The acoustic guitar. Well, calling him an acoustic guitar player seems not a particularly adequate way of describing him. For the benefit of anybody who might not have heard John Fay, how would you describe him? Well, um, I did see him live. I did go to a. Uh, it was at the. Uh, there was a, a place in the late 70s in London called The Venue. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Dreadful, dreadful, depressing yeah, place. Yeah, in Victoria, yeah. And after I interviewed him I, in 1979, uh, we went along to see him, and it was so depressing. It's just this lone man in a suit on the stage with all sorts of Saturday night noise going on, trying to play the guitar, and it was just so depressing. Again, I walked out, I think, I was never a great gig-goer. <laughs> but no, he's a... Um, He's very principled. You talk about it in, in that chapter, which is really revealing all about how he was a he's lovely man. Very, he was very against the kind of folk revivalists and thought they were just kind of hollow platitudes that they were copying. And he'd, he'd come to that music via the Harry Smith anthology, hadn't he? So he'd listen to bluegrass and he, again, he American was a very complex music. man who could be genuinely lovely. And you know, and, and uh, when I, you know, when I met him and interviewed him, I was just a bumbling you know, cub reporter, but he was gorgeous with me and just he could have talked all night, you know. But then you research it and find out that he could also be a horrible, horrible person to people. Again, people uh, in his life nearer to him, you know, he could be a dreadful to them. But, um, I mean, one, I think the difference between what you raised it going to gigs and... Um, and, and sitting at home listening to music interests me because when you get to our age, you know, you think there are certain records that you know you play over and over and over again, that, like Steely Dan. And um, there are certain records from your past, save off the top of my head, Iggy and the Stooges. What does it mean when you're 60 to sit at home <laughs> and put an Iggy and the Stooges album on? What do you do? Do you sit and listen to it and... I don't know, what does it mean? It, does it mean something completely different from when you were 17? Whereas there are other musics that seem to grow with you, you know, over the course of a life that mean different things as, as, as you age as well. And um, I'd hope that one of the things in the book is, is kind of um, uh, the opposite of uh, not denying ageing, because... That's an interesting thing about a lot of the books now is that pop was always about youth, you know, and now we're all writing from a completely different vantage that we're all grown up, you know, very grown up. <laughs> Give us an example of something that's meant something different to you, a musician, a type of music that's meant something different over the years. Well, I mean, Charlie Parker... Uh, who was it? Charlie Parker's a good example. There was another one I thought of yesterday, was it... Um, it's more the different things that... Uh, yes, that's it. I was thinking about um, Miles and Kind of Blue because I bought a copy the other day of um, uh, Remastered, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah. And um, when you're 16, 15, 16 or something, what will impress you with that record? It might be Miles or probably Coltrane because you're pretending to your friends that you like that more radical side of it you know and then 
maybe you grow a few you, you listen and you think well miles is really subtle i like that you know and um then another decade goes by and personally i became obsessed with bill evans because he's such he's barely there he's like a ghost and he's the only white guy in an all black band and at times you can barely hear what he's doing but it's crucial what he's doing it holds it together you know and um Recently, I was uh, listening to it again. I was amazed at how uh, Cannonball Adderley, the alto sax, is just fantastic in it. And for years I've listened to this and never really, you know... And also the drummer. Um, uh, I can't remember his name now. Jimmy Cox. Yeah. Um, is just crucial to it. you know. And again, very unshowy. Yeah. Very, you know... And I think that's a, partly a, a consequence of growing old, that you, you admire different things. You, know, you, you can admire someone who's less showy and is prepared to do that, is prepared to serve the other people in the band. How, in pop music, do you, has Steely Dan done that with you? Have they kind of changed for you? Well, definitely. I think, when, um, I think obviously, when you're a teenager, you, you like that they're smart, Alex. And um, that's a very teenage. Again, uh, if you uh, an example in film would be Taxi Driver. You, it's a very it's a very immature teenage film, I think. And there are aspects of um, Steely Dan that appeal to that teenage boy, I think, very much. But then, as I think I say in the essay, if 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 you if you keep with it long enough, I think there's a lot of pain in there as well. And I think that especially with Donald Fagan, well, both of them, you only have to look at their lives. I think you know they were obviously keeping an immense amount in, you know, and in order to uh, which we never knew very much about. They never really, no. they never gave anything away. Well, um, they were musos. They were uh, they thought of themselves as jazz musicians yeah. rather than rock musicians. I think, and uh, there's a long tradition there, you know. I don't, Ian does some terrific stuff on, on social media, on, on Twitter. Uh, and uh, one thing you do, I think most evenings, you do a thing called First Drink Soundtrack. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. You, you just post, uh, you know, I'm playing whatever you're playing. I don't know, John Martin or, or whatever. Which I think is really interesting because it, it, um, it kind of touches on what is one of the major challenges in music nowadays. That you've got all of it... What do you feel like playing? You know what I mean. What's front of mind? What What are you in the mood for? You know, how do you how do you do that? Do you sit there with a, a rack of vinyl on CD or whatever, and then go along and pick out? Or well, what I've noticed is that uh, I mean, during the day, um, I mean, in, there were years in the past when first drink soundtrack would have been like eleven in the morning. Or, but these days, it's, <laughs> <laughs> these days it is strictly, you know, never before five. But um, <laughs> that's, that's my wife laughing. Very, very Danny Baker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, I've noticed that. I mean, during the day, I listen to all sorts of stuff. You know, it's like African stuff, Schoenberg, whatever. You know, I mean, classical music. And but the minute, the minute that it becomes first drink soundtrack, the minute that. It, there's like a dozen, two dozen records a lot of the time and that will, that will be the one I pick. 
And it's like some strange, unconscious... Um, and Steely Dan is, is one of them. So do you, you know? go back to the same dozen? Or, or, or do a, a lot different of the time, dozen? yes, right. definitely, definitely. So what sort of things will there be? Steely um, Dan is one. Little Feet is another. I mean, they're, they're, I think a lot of them are to do with when you first heard them, you know. And uh, uh, Roxy Music, the first two, three albums is another one, yeah. Um, Billie Holiday is another one, yeah. There's all sorts of... Um, I'd need a psychoanalyst. To right, they go, they go well me. with alcohol, clearly. Huh? They go well with alcohol. I don't so know, because it's not... It is literally the first drink, so it's not, it's not the fifth or sixth drink, but I don't know. <laughs> now, another thing you post a lot about on social media, <coughs> which fascinates me, is your wanderings around charity shops, which you've, you've clearly spent an awful lot of time doing, looking at old you know, vinyl or CDs and or whatever. Find very, very rare things sometimes, which you pay kind of 50 pence for. <laughs> so what, 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 are the, what are the really interesting things that you've, you've well, discovered? Well, it all started, I mean... Again, it's to do with uh, a first drink soundtrack, partly. In the old days, uh, when we all worked for magazines and stuff, I used to be you know, addicted to magazines and stuff. I would go out and buy a whole bunch, whether it was New Yorker or Mojo or Q, and go to a pub and sit you know, two or three hours in the afternoon. And, and then at a certain point, I decided it was unhealthy to be doing, <laughs> doing this. Uh, and in the... I've always said if there was a memoir about uh, freelance life, it would be called Getting Out of the House. So once you've decided not to go to the pub during the day, you need another reason to leave the house. You need a destination. And it so happened that I, it, that's how um, charity shops came about. I, instead of going to pubs, I started going to charity shops in the North London area. I was very lucky. I mean, this is in the days before I was on Twitter or anything, and it was in the days before it became a thing. Uh, you know, charity vinyl. And um, it was just, I had about six or seven in the area, just, you know, and um, the first few things I found, I was very lucky to find some lovely stuff. Like today I was playing, um, I dug out these four Nina Simone albums, which was one of the first things I ever found in a, in a shop in Seven Sisters Road. These four 60s, uh, from the 1960s and 70s, Nina Simone albums. One of them still had the price ticket on from Bieber. Wow, brilliant. <laughs> you left that on. That adds yes, value, that surely. Is still there. Yeah, That's bad. brilliant. Yeah, I might sell that in my... Uh, Do you find that charity shops increasingly price things at ridiculous Some of them values? do. A lot of them don't. I mean, um, it depends... Uh, I mean, if, uh, I live in uh, like Holloway Road, uh, Seven Sisters, so I'm still fairly okay. If you go down to Islington <laughs> or into the West End, it can get ridiculous. But you can still find incredible bargains. Um, what's and what's been your greatest well. find? Then? Uh, I don't know. I mean, those Nina Simone ones. I mean, um, there's, there's a lot that have. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I'm. I may. I. I've thought about writing a book about it, not about going to charity shops, but using it as a way to... Uh, I don't know if anyone knows the film critic David Thompson. Who yes, did a yeah, book, yeah. You know, Have You Heard, where he goes through all these. I thought about doing a charity, uh, using charity shops as a way to talk about all sorts of different weird... You know, not weird, but um, stuff I found in charity shops, you know. Um, I've, uh, someone I loved now, the French singer Leo Ferre... 
I, I first found in a charity shop. And I had no idea who he was. Um, but I just took a chance on it and uh, took it home and um, put this on. Guy singing in, middle-aged guy singing in French. That I'd, I, almost blubbing, you know. I, just, I had no idea what he was singing about, but there was something about his voice. Again, we go back to singers and, and their voices. Yeah. But, and, uh, well, you should write it, Ian. You should definitely write well, it. Look about, about, uh, about getting ten- out of the house. Getting out of the house <laughs> to follow up this. Uh, it gets me out of the house. This, this remarkable track. book. It gets me home. This curving track. It gets which me I- out of the house. It gets me into <laughs> yeah, the house. Yeah. Yeah. Which I have to say, I, I, I finished this book the other day and I immediately went and listened again to about six of the records that were mentioned within it. Well, that's what I hope would. And it, yeah. it's it's I cannot praise it too highly. It's uh, it's absolutely terrific. And uh, would you please thank our first guest this evening, Ian Penman. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.